Today we are continuing in our Origins series. Uh, we are attempting to look at uh, who the Bible says we are, who we're meant to be, and how does this affect us today? Uh, how we should live out this story that we've been called into. We're belonging to the family of God, being part of his mission, and how do we withhold the pressures of today? As we're looking at this, we see that the Bible is not primarily a set of disconnected individual stories. Each has a little lesson or a moral about how to live life. But primarily, the Bible is a single storyline from beginning to end. It primarily is telling us what is wrong with the human race. What is God doing about it and how history is going to turn out at the end. And we've begun to trace out this storyline by looking at Genesis. And in a few weeks' time, we're going to be starting Revelation to see where we are headed. So far, we've looked at the creation story that we as humans are image bearers of God. Adam then very helpfully looked at the fall of man and sin entering the world. Bible, the Bible's simple answer to the question is what is wrong with the human race or the world is sin. Contemporary people just kind of cringe and wince a bit, might develop a tick when we start talking about the word sin, but it's because we don't like it. And then last week, Andrew Buck really helpfully looked at the givenness of biological sex and how we as Christians should love the gender confused community and how we live out our calling as men and women. What a man is and what a woman is and not to fall into stereotypes. I found that really helpful how we opened that up last week. And this week, I would like to continue looking at what the Bible says about who we are as male and female. What does it mean to be a man? Biblically defined, what does it mean to be a man? And what does it mean to be a woman, biblically defined? And we live in a society now that is so confused and affected by abuses of power, patriarchal societies, toxic masculinity, extreme feminism, and to even disagree with some of that, um, extreme feminism is to completely alienate yourself, which I'm hoping that's not what I'm going to achieve this morning. To, even to discuss actually what biblical manhood is has been growing more and more out of favour. If we're to look at what a man should be truly defined by the Bible, the, the very concept of masculinity being looked at is through a lens of what is problematic. I think it's actually the, probably the lack of biblical masculinity that has led to turmoil and brokenness that we see in today's culture. So when we talk about men, women, it's important that you pay attention and men, Hello men, it's harder for you to pay attention, but when we talk about women, you need to pay attention. Now, and this isn't just so we can tell our spouses as well how they should be, or our siblings, or whoever. So if I see lots of nudging, then that's not really what it's about this morning. Andre, next week, will be talking about marriage. There may be some crossover in what we discuss but this, this is for everybody, these two weeks, whether you're married, whether you're single, male or female. But as we look over this, though, these two weeks, it's to help us think biblically, to help us have high expectations of how men treat women, of how women treat men. And we have a biblical filter in which, what, which we say what is and isn't okay. 
Firstly, let's go back to the origin of man and woman again in Genesis 2. Uh, the words will appear on the screen. Joe, I haven't got my clicker, so you're going to have to keep up. Um, Genesis 2 from 15 to 25. It says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens brought and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, if we look back at the first episode of this series, I looked at creation. God had made man and woman and made them equal. That God made man and woman to complement one another. Not, you know, nice hair, Adam. Not that sort of compliment, but to complement one another. We looked at the fact that out of all created creatures, mankind had greater value than any other as image bearers of God. The difference between men and women and every other living thing is not to be cruel, but to be stewards of and carers for the rest of creation. And this is for human flourishing. And there is confusion today because of the horrors uh, and abuse that have been made by men over the centuries. I believe, though, there is complementarity between the sexes that we see here in Genesis 2, Ephesians 5, and others. And uh, Andre will probably unpack Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5 and the link between them more so next week. And often when we talk about this word, this, this topic, there's a word that is used to help us understand uh, the role of men within the church and marriage. Remember, um, Andrew talked about it last week, about the two parameters of leadership for men is in marriage and the church. And that word is headship. It's a biblical word, but I believe it has been misused and abused over the years. And this isn't so that the male is the dominant in charge figure. That is not what it's about. A masculinity has come under attack because the world has moved away from the biblical definition of what it means to be a man. Now, what, what is it that makes a man? Last week, Andrew helpfully and clearly defined that to be a man, you need the biology of a man. That is what you need to be a man. However, is there a difference between biologically what makes a male and a man? Or is there another component 
that makes male and female into man and woman, biblically defined, leading into all that they are called to be defined by the scriptures. So an eight-year-old boy has the biology of a male, but does it make him a man? In the same way, I have, I have a son who's turning out to be a fine young man, and I have two daughters, and their biology makes them female, but I wouldn't class them as a woman yet. They're seven and nine. And within marriage and church leadership, we can define the man's role as headship, which is a unique role of leadership for the work of establishing human flourishing. For both men and women, Andrew last week highlighted the main call for us all is to be Christ-like. That is the main call for us all. Men and women are meant to be together, to complement one another, serving one another. There cannot be a good argument either for a family home that is better when there are no men present. Now, this is not to condemn single families, uh, divorced couples. That is not what we're doing. And we're not including abusive men because actually a family home is better without an abusive man. Children are not best in fatherless environments and children flourish sociologically and spiritually when good men are present. Good men. And the problem is that so many men have chosen not to be men. Men have abdicated responsibility and where that happens, uh, where they've abdicated their role and responsibility, there is brokenness. Of course, as I've said, there are single mothers, there are widows, there are spouses who do not follow Christ. But I just want to say, if, if you fit into this category where the ideal is lacking, grace always abounds. Always. We see all throughout Scripture mothers pleading God for their children. And God responds. We see that with Hannah, Sarah, Elizabeth. God is gracious. And we see just after the verses that we've read today, Adam abdicates responsibility. Instead of being the man he was called to be by God and exercise headship. So how should we today as men exercise headship and this unique responsibility? And this is the only way. It is through sacrificial love by serving and loving and dying to self. What headship isn't is man taking control of everything. It's only within the parameters of marriage and church leadership. And only within church leadership is it eldership. The role of a man is to exercise sacrificial love. When we try to understand masculinity, godly masculinity, uh, the difference is that men give and boys take. There's a difference. My son, who I've said is turning into a fine young man, when he was seven, he was a little boy, it was about him. It's generally the case with children. They want to take, take, take. But godly men self-sacrifice for the good of the wife, for the good of the church, and for the good of the community. Self-sacrificial love is the mark of biblical masculinity. 
It is the only way, only way, true headship is exercised or practised. If you have takers in headship, boys, it is oppressive. Ruling with an iron fist. Men are not takers, they are not selfish, boys are. It's how we've ended up in this toxic masculinity where men think maleness is being aggressive, it's sexual prowess, it's being good at sport, it's not showing emotion, it's being bigoted or homophobic. I know what this is like. I literally grew up in this environment. I played football from the age of about eight to 35. I haven't played for a while. Um, I, I grew up next to a fire station where my dad worked as a fireman. It was a great social scene, but I spent a lot of the time with my dad and other firemen. I hung around in big groups of men and boys growing up. I worked on building sites for 20 plus years. So these were very male-heavy environments. And then I came into church life and I was very confused. I, I had all this testosterone and I didn't know what to do with it. But then slowly but surely, I got to know other men and started to get a picture of, actually, that what I know isn't right. I got to know people, and they're still my friends today, Dave Gadd and uh, Simon Warney, I actually got to know them as friends, and I thought, these guys are all right. Yeah. <laughs> they're pretty normal. I mean, I know them a bit better now, so I know that's not necessarily the case, but they... These guys actually really helped me. But do you know what? I probably wouldn't be here if it wasn't for these guys. I, they really helped me and just became my friends. I realised that even some Christians play football. <laughs> There's a, a guy who used to be here some years ago called Andrew Coates, just invited me along to the football in midweek. And I started to think, ah, oh, this, this is okay. So I was trying to understand what the balance was. I'd come out of an, an aggressive environment. It actually still has an effect on me now when um, there's men's gatherings or weekends or conferences, etc. I've got to be honest, they don't really appeal to me because I have spent most of my life in a male-heavy environment. And the thought of leaving my family, that my family, they're my peeps, I want to be with them. I love spending time with my, with my wife and children. I'd rather be with them rather than anybody else. It is though good to spend time with other men. It does do you good. And I think there has been a, a confusion actually over what this word complementarity means about men and women complementing each other. I think even people who claim to be complementarians don't get it right all the time. A lot of them don't, actually. And I think complementarity, done well, is not scared of strong women. I have respect, I listen to, I take on board women's views and opinions. And how can I help, and how can I put that into what we're trying to do as a church? Now, um, some of you will have met my wife. You know her, Gemma. She's not a wallflower. She has strong opinions. And I listen to them and take them on board. And there's lots of strong women in the church who I talk to and want to listen to their opinions and help that shape me. I speak to my friend, Ali Collins. 
Rachel Northcroft, Gabriella, who shared this morning, Sharon, Becca Collins. I want to listen to the opinions of strong women. I am not afraid of what they might say or what their view or opinion of me might be. And the differences and similarities should be celebrated between men and women. Sometimes we talk, we talk about in general statements to make sure they're not absolute statements. So we can say things about the differences and people get upset because they turn them into absolute statements. So when I say uh, men are generally taller than women, that's a general statement because it's generally true, but it's not absolute because there are some women that are taller than men. I actually have only met about two women that are taller than me, but I'm six foot four, so there's, that's the difference. 1 Peter 3 says women are the weaker vessel. Generally, men are stronger than women. That's what it means, physically. So, that again, that's not an absolute statement. Most husbands would be able to beat their wives in an arm wrestle. But that's not the case for everyone. And after the discipleship tracks, we'll be doing some weightlifting courses. That's <laughs> Sometimes, so it's helpful to make general statements, but not make them into absolutes, because that's where we can get upset and offended. And it, to re-emphasise, there is equal dignity, worth and value in the sight of God. Both given dominion over creation, both heirs to life. And sometimes equality is often thought to have equal numbers of men and women in all professions and areas of society. But I'm not sure if that is true. So most people who collect my bins are men. Would it be equal if we had the equal amount of uh, men and women as refuse collectors? Probably not. Majority of executives, chief execs and billionaires are men, but far more men are homeless and imprisoned than women. And this isn't right, but more men tend to be at the top and bottom of society. I'm just laying out what it is. So if a 50-50 split is what is needed for value and dignity, then great. But that might not necessarily be the case. It, it's important for these societal differences as well, for men to speak up. And that's part of the problem, is men are not speaking up on injustices like rape, domestic abuse, coercive control, equality in the workplace. So many places where men need to speak up. We are often confused by these societal pressures that, make, that help people believe certain hobbies, behaviours make men or women. There are some oughts for men in scripture, but in general, where scripture commands men, it is not an ought-based, it is an is-based. You shouldn't, you ought to do these things, actually you need to be these things. So it's, it should be, you are a man, now act like this. Not, if you do these things, you will be a man. Do you understand, you see the difference? It's not directed to what you drink or drive, or if you like sport or not or theatre, as Andrew talked about last week. We could try and define a man by a long list of attributes, 
But guys, if we're honest, most of us would fail. Probably all of us would fail. It is, however, to reiterate our biology, which makes us a man. God has made you a man and qualified you. And when we know that, we can embrace the roles and responsibilities that have been given. Other general confusion in society about roles and behaviour are men that have been fantasised by the sexual and digital revolution about what they think is a good relationship or the ideal of what a woman might be. Women are richer and more powerful today than ever before, but not necessarily any happier. And these discussions get drawn into extremes there's extreme feminism at one end and complete misogyny at the other. Men, though, should have an intrinsic sense to protect women, this very precious and amazing gift of God. We're seeing now in the news, aren't we, where women and children are fleeing Ukraine and the men are staying to fight. I don't know if you remember, there's a, a story a few years back now, a shooting in Colorado in America in a cinema. And some people stormed the cinema and just started shooting. And men threw women on the ground, not who weren't their wives or girlfriends, and died on top of them. And men died and the women lived. You might have seen that uh, very long and boring film, Titanic. Um, <laughs> And I think it's depicted in there that the men are trying to shove the women out of the way. But that actually, if you read historically, that's not what happened. When we look back at Genesis 2, Adam was given the role to guard the garden. And his primary role was to protect. The woman was there, it says, as a helper, which, by the way, is not secondary or derogatory. You know, God is described as helper. The same word is used as helper. He is our helper throughout the Bible. So it is no way secondary. Men should guard. So, guys, if you're at home and you're in bed with your wife and you hear a bump in the night, you don't send your wife downstairs to find out what's going on, do you? I don't lie in bed with Gemma at night, we'll hear a noise and I'll just roll up and say, go and get Nancy and find out what that was about. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. Mainly because she'd be like kicking me out anyway to go and find out. But the role is to guard. The role of guarding comes into the church, which again is only in eldership, which is referred for men. It's about guarding. The main thing in the New Testament is for elders to protect the sheep from wolves. That's the only thing restricted just to men in church leadership is eldership. And part of that role is to guard and guide and not to allow certain things within the church. We as elders have to deal with some things that are unseen. Things we sense are not right or have confrontations that deal with certain issues. So as not to allow stuff into the church that the Bible says should not be there. Andre 
we'll be looking in greater depth at marriage next week. And the union of marriage is supposed to represent the union of Christ and the church. Christ and the church are two but one. We are in him and he is in us. Christ and the church serve each other as do husbands and wives. Christ leads and lays down his life for the church and the church responds to his love and commits to him. So marriage and headship should be the literal opposite end of domineering. Men sadly though fall into a trap. They fall into the trap of uh, either trying to lead in headship with domineering or controlling attitudes or they avoid this confrontation and are completely passive and apathetic. What we should be aiming for is servant leadership modelled on Jesus' ministry to the church. I've never had to lay down my life for Gemma. Well, there was a couple of times where um, we were at a fireworks display and I, the fireworks started going in the wrong directions and I selflessly threw myself in front of her. I, I don't want applause for it, right? I'm not looking for the acclaim. Um, and there was a couple of times where she nearly set a restaurant on fire, but I had to put the fire out. But apart from that, I've never had to lay down my life for Gemma. But I do try to serve her in other ways. On a Saturday, she likes to lie in, and I like to stop that from being interrupted by three small people. I like to look after the kids, cook them breakfast. If she's busy at work, she has a busy job as a teacher, I don't see the roles within the home as some are hers, so I don't see the role of looking after the children, doing housework as hers, and when she's busy at work, I think, well, when's this gonna get done? No, I, I see them actually as a shared responsibility that we both take. And one of the things I feel really strongly about, actually, is the father taking his role and responsibility within the home. One of your main calls as a disciple of Jesus is to make disciples. My job as the person who leads the eldership team is to help lead and disciple the church into obedience and maturity in Christ. However, I am failing if I do not do this in my home. My primary disciples are my family. That's encouraging, Elijah, isn't it? You're one of my primary disciples. <laughs> Pray for him. <laughs> so whether you're a husband, a father, a single man, or anything in between, I think we should all aspire to being good role models within our home, whether we are married yet or not. And if you are not married and wish to be, remember this when you come into marriage. It is not my job as a father and husband to be the breadwinner. I don't believe that that's biblically defined, that the man should be the breadwinner, the main earner. And earn the money and let your wife do the rest. It is our job to see our spouse flourish and grow in all that God has called her to be. Gemma and I often do a pre-marriage course, we're doing one at the moment, and we say that to the couples that are about to uh, step into marriage that their primary aim in life as they go into marriage is not to make the other one happy, believe it or not. And that's a good objective, by the way, but 
that is not your primary role, is not make the others one happy, but to be on mission together, to grow in the knowledge and the love of the Lord together. If you have children, your role as a father is not just to kiss them on the forehead at the end of the day as you put them to bed, but to know them, to get into their hearts, to know where they're at. If you've never led family discipleship times, now is the time to start. It is literally never too late. That's partly why we have a bookstore at the back, is to help and encourage you and to spend time with your family around the table in the living room just before bed to open up the Word of God together. And the resources on the bookstore will help you do that. It may be difficult if you're going to start now. The kids won't, not might not, won't pay attention. But it is so worth it. We have a particular culture as well where we live where there is an extreme drivenness about children's education. To the point of idolatry. And we, as the church, must not fall into that trap. So with that in mind, can I ask you a question? If you have children, how often have you encouraged your child in their prayer life and Bible reading compared to how much you ask them about their education? How often do you ask them about their homework compared to how much you ask them about prayer? We. As a family, we sometimes will read books like they're on the back of the, at the bookstore and they'll go through themes and we'll read them together. We'll get the kids to read a bit. We'll ask them what it's about. I like to explain doctrines to my children sometimes. See, they're so fortunate. Um, I like to um, open up 1 Corinthians 15 to get them to, uh, to explain the gospel. And there's so many resources around now. We watch Bible project videos, which are so well put together, really visual, and help us understand it. This is literally our job as parents. This is not the kids' work here, or the youth leaders, to disciple your children. We want to help and play our part in this, but you are primarily responsible for your child's discipleship. So fathers, if you have not taken the lead up until this point, if you haven't taken responsibility in leading, then now is the time. And it may be, slash will be, messy and difficult to start with. Kids may not listen as you try to open up the Word of God with them, but God will honour it. You might have to fight to keep them all in one place, but God will honour it. We don't have this all sorted and dusted off by the way as a family we'll start to talk about grace for instance and by the end i'm shouting at the kids <laughs> so it doesn't go brilliantly every time probably less than 50 percent i'll be i'll be honest with you but it's so worth trying there may be some time of adjustment while you step in and say in this house we are going to be serious about Jesus Christ. Can I urge you, all of us now, to change the orientation of your home from work and education to Jesus, to pray to Jesus, to get to know Jesus, to understand his word better. And it's so important. I, I, I 
believe that men do set the, the temperature of the home spiritually. And let this be joyful. Let this be alive. Don't get all serious and upset like I do sometimes when people aren't listening. This should be a joy to do. You may have received another model growing up or from your culture, but let your family see that you as parents are taking God seriously. If you have kids doing exams right now or coming up in the summer, the best way you can serve your kids is yes, to make sure they study well. But do not take them away from church life to do that. Give them a good balance. My wife will be able to tell you what are good study habits for your children. And it's not just study, study, study. They need a balance of life. We are always, always sending messages to our kids. Do you know that? Whether we mean to or not, we're always sending messages to our kids. And to stay away from being involved in church life or from youth is saying primarily, this is important. We're always sending messages. Turn your house into one that has much laughter, that is filled with joy and worship. I make it known in my house that Sunday is important. It's the Lord's day. We take coming to church seriously. This is not a secondary thing for us. And it has always been like that, by the way, not just because I lead the team here and I'm employed by the church. It's always been the way. We honour God by turning up on time. We serve because it is part of his, his calling over us as a family. You might have seen my children on the door occasionally or on the check-in with the, the kids' work downstairs. It's our calling as a family. Just as we're coming to end here, a couple of verses that will just help us. 1 Corinthians 16, in instructing what it is to be men and women of faith. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. Titus 2 says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be model, a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Men and women, what, it, what is it to live out the call of God over our lives? What is it to be a man and woman of God is to stand firm in the faith. It's so relevant for us right now. We cannot be shaken in times like this because we need to stand firm in our faith. Be steadfast. Let all that you do be in love. Be self-controlled. Be respectful. Teach what is good. Show integrity. Raise your children to love Jesus. God is ultimately responsible, of course, for how they respond. And we do pray on a regular basis for those, those that have turned away. 
but keep praying for them. Praying for them not to be happy, but to love Jesus where they will find long-lasting joy. You know, when I, I put my girls to bed at night, I pray for them, I talk to them about their day, and I ask them this question on a regular basis. I say, Nancy, are you going to be a mighty woman of God? She says, yes, Daddy, yes, Daddy. And I'll go to the other one, they've got beds next to each other. Eden, you're going to be a mighty woman of God, yes. And I ask them, what are you going to be when you grow up? And they say, a mighty woman of God. And I pray for them. I pray, God, give them a heart for you. Help them follow you. I pray they will fall in love with you. Have a passion to make your name known. I want to raise daughters that are not wallflowers. Waiting for some guy to come along and make their life. I want them to be strong theologically. I want them to be passionate about Jesus. And I want them to love his church and the kingdom. You know, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, Nicodemus asks him, what, what does he need to do? What does he need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you must be born again. You must be born again. And men, if we want to live up to the calling, and women, if we want to live up to the calling, we mustn't try and uh, tick off a list of things we must do and achieve. We must be born again. We must take God seriously and take him on his word. We must not try and build our own kingdom in this life. As if we're going to be here forever, because we're not. We are sojourners in a foreign land. Foreigners passing through. We need to receive new life afresh. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. As Andrew said last week, we need to be Christ-like. And we should ultimately grasp the gospel, the good news. In the gospel, we all, men and women, play the part of the wife. We do not play the hero who rescues and saves. We are the ones falling on the deck in an emergency, hoping someone else's blood will cover us. Jesus plays the part for the husband who leads, who tells us to be fruitful and multiply. He is the one who guards and protects us, and we are the ones who help. He is the lover who says over us, who calls out to us and says, I want you, I'm calling you. You didn't choose me, I chose you. He is the lover and we are the beloved who gladly receive his affection. And we just say thank you Jesus for saving us. He is the one who lays down his life for us and we respond with affection and sacrifice. To his affection and sacrifice with submission and obedience. He is the head, we are the beneficiaries. We, God's people, are not the Proverbs 31 wife who is beautiful and competent and uh, sorted and brings in praise at the city gate. We are the Ezekiel 16 wife, bloodied and stained, immoral, broken, messy, who the husband comes and says, I choose you despite of your mess. And I choose to clothe you in my righteousness. And because I love you, you become lovable. That's what God says over you. You might not feel lovable, but he has clothed you in his righteousness and you become lovable. We are in need of a rescue and we have a husband who saves us. Hallelujah. We are the recipients rather than the agents of God's rescue and we can receive it today. 
Why don't we stand, church, and respond to this that he, has, he is calling over our lives to be his disciple, to make disciples, to be steadfast in faith. Why don't we just close our eyes for a moment and just ask the Lord to speak to you right now. He chose you first. You didn't choose him. Jesus, we thank you that we are recipients of your grace, that your blood covers us. You have guarded and protected us, Lord, by dying for us on the cross. Help us, Lord, be all that we are called to be as men and women of faith, men and women that know Jesus. Help us, Lord. I pray for the fathers, Lord, in this room, in this church. Will you help us, Lord, disciple our families well? And if you feel challenged this morning, you say, I can't remember a time when I gave my life to Jesus, the one who died for me, then you can respond to him right now. All we have to do is just say, thank you, Jesus. Sorry for turning my back on you. Thank you for dying for me on the cross. Now please come and take first place in my life. He wants you to be born again. And when you give your life to Jesus, you are born again. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you and helps you follow him. So Lord, I, I pray that now. Will you come and dwell afresh in us this morning? Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Lord, help us not be like the world around us, but help us be steadfast. Help us be examples of you. Help us be Christ-like. I pray that for all of us here today, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We're now going to come to a time where we remember physically, where we can taste and smell and feel what Jesus has done. And we're going to do that by breaking bread. We take the bread. <clears throat> Jesus handed it out to his disciples and said, to break this as his body broken for us, to do this in remembrance. Why don't we eat the bread together? Thank you, Jesus, for your body that was broken <clears throat> for us. Then let's take the wine as we remember his blood that was poured out for us. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood that covers us, that washes us clean in your sight. Thank you, Jesus, that we have been made righteous in your sight. Thank you, Lord. We're just going to respond to that now uh, in a final song of worship. <clears throat> Thank you, Father, for your grace. Jesus, we pray again, help us be examples to the world where we are steadfast. I pray for these times that we're in, Lord. 
I pray that this will result in many, many coming to you, to know you, Jesus. Help us in these difficult times, Lord, to reach the lost and the broken and the shaky. Father, help us be the men and women that you have called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.